Hello and welcome to the podcast, How Did You End Up Here? I'm Jamie Hare and I'm talking to people in interesting jobs and finding out what path they took to get there. This week is the first part of my chat with Paul Tucker, who's both a television producer and director, as well as a senior lecturer at the University of the West of Scotland. Here he tells me his journey from growing up in Kent to avoiding being hit on the head with a baseball in San Francisco. Paul Tucker, thank you very much for giving me some time. Uh, Can you give us your current job title? It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So my current job title is a long old business card. Um, So I'm senior lecturer at the University of West of Scotland, uh, teach mainly on broadcast production, TV and radio. I'm the programme leader for uh, broadcast production, TV and radio, and I'm the deputy director of the Creative Media Academy. So a lot to, to take on board there. You're juggling a lot of hats within the same organisation. Is that do you enjoy that side of the of your job? I like. I've always liked doing lots of different things. Um, some of that, some of that work has has yet to completely be absolutely defined, um, and uh, um, it's in some ways it's just different names for the for the for the job that I do. Anyway, you know, I've always come in. I think I was brought in when I started at university to be one of those people that offers a bridge between the industry and education and quite a lot of what I do in both both my teaching and the the other work associated with the university is is in that vein really linking academia with with the tv and creative industries so going back you're obviously uh, we're in air at the moment you're not a native of uh, of uh, Ayrshire uh, you spotted that then. I spotted that. You just it, it's something in the accent, or uh, you don't use the you don't say Ken and things like that. Um, but you're from Kent. Um, when you were uh, when you were sort of at school and that sort of thing, you you grew up in Kent for the most part. Yeah, it's a slightly more complicated story than that, but yes. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, and so Kent is known as England's Garden. The Garden of England. Oh, the Garden of England. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So obviously some. I mean, is it all just sunny countryside and oh, you're running yeah. around playing football and that yeah, sort of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's it's full of people is what yeah. it is right. now. Um, that's the thing I notice when I go down, particularly because obviously uh, when I go back down to Kent, you have to go through London and mm. um, you go down the motorway and you get to sort of a little bit north of Manchester and you just start to notice cars and things. And whenever I go down to Kent now, I'm just struck by how many people there seem to be down there. Mm. Um, I was... So until I was six, uh, my dad was in the forces, is in, in the Royal Air Force, and we moved all over the place. I've got three brothers, and they all lived in um, Naples and Singapore. One of my brothers was born in Singapore because my dad was stationed out there. So we only really settled in Kent when I was six. I lived in a place called Upchurch, outside Sittingbourne, tiny little village, pub on a village green and all that kind of stuff. And then we moved to Whitstable, which is on the north coast of Kent, um, just north of Canterbury, famous for its cathedral uh, and its archbishop and um, when I was there I always tell this story but Whitstable was once there was a Radio 1 once had a poll this had been in the mid 70s to try and find the most boring town in the UK (laughs) and Whitstable came sixth which just kind of summed the place up at the time (laughs) it wasn't even in the top three of the most boring towns in the UK it was sixth since I've left I'm not sure that this is linked, but since I've left, Whitstable has become quite a fashionable little place on the north coast of Kent. There's lots of very nice restaurants. Um, one of my best mates has got a restaurant there that's one of the most famous, and um, people 
go down to Whitstable for the weekend from London. They're called DFLs. Yeah. So people say, bloody hell, the place is full of DFLs this weekend, isn't it? Down from London. Yeah. Um, so it's completely changed since I, I was yeah. there. And I was what. This is a few years ago now. I was working in, on a TV programme, an antique show, and one of the experts said to me, oh, you're from Whitstable. I do hope you've got property there. But of course <laughs> I haven't. And yeah. um, uh, I still really, I've still got, I've got good schoolmates that still live there and, uh, you know, have been away and have gone back or have, have are still there. And, I li- I, you know, it's, it's a great place to have, have come from. It's got its own sort of unique history and backstory and everything. Mm. And it's upped its game from when it was sixth most boring. It's, yeah, it's gone the other it, direction. And it's slightly gone in the other direction. Sixth most exciting. Yeah. It's got, um, you know, obviously you've got a beach, so growing up you're, you're down mucking about. And it's a pebbly beach, but it's it's still a beach. And there's big uh, green grass slopes in Tankerton, which is a bit I mostly lived in. It's part of Whitstable, Tankerton Slopes, which was great for playing football on. And um, I was one of those children that, that ran around and played football on on the not so much on the streets when I moved to Whitstable but you know I'd play a game Saturday morning Saturday afternoon Sunday morning maybe um football hockey cricket you know I was always right. always playing football dreaming of being not well not Glenn Hoddle but Jimmy Greaves uh, too early dreaming too. of um who would uh, Martin Chivers as right. the first <laughs> top of striker I kind of uh became aware of and uh my dream used to be that it was it was um, it was too old in an FA Cup final, and I was brought on in a substitute. And I'd score with a diving header. Yeah, I think it still might be on. You know, still a possibility. There's no, there's no point. You're still playing football, so exactly. There's no yeah. point in giving it yeah. up. Yeah. And when when you were at school, people asked you, you said, what, "What do you want to be when you grow up, Paul?" What was your answer? I don't know if I did have an answer. I'm not sure that I ever really knew. Although I did for a while run the school radio station or present on the school radio station. I did bits and pieces of of writing I can't honestly remember if I had a thing that I wanted to do but I knew I always knew that I wanted to do something that I wanted to do I just mm-hmm. didn't know what that what, what, what that thing was um I've always been fascinated by media mm-hmm. I never never knew anybody that worked in radio or television or did I know any journalists even I don't think so not at the time so it wasn't even I think if someone said, would you like to make television? I wouldn't have even known what that was, mm-hmm. really. Um, uh, but I'd, I'd, I was always fascinated by how it worked. Um, I was of the age where everybody brought sounds or New Musical Express and would pore over everything that they mm. said and analyse it and compare it and with with other things. And so I was fascinated with that and, and I was starting to become aware of the of the bias within the media at the age of kind of 18 and so, so and um and, and tv was a was a quite a dominant force i watched a lot of television mm-hmm. um and, and this is a bit of a hoary old cliche but at the time you had to what if you didn't watch it you'd missed it yeah um you know so if you didn't if your favorite band was on the old gray whistle test if you didn't see it that was it you yeah. weren't going to see it again for quite mm-hmm. a while yeah until they invented youtube until they invented and it all youtube popped and it all up popped up again yeah um, and when you were you know, so when you're kind of 16 17 18 were you making sort of subject choices at school based on on that sort of notion or were you thinking towards university like what's your kind of decision making process no I, no not at all my i did the subjects i did at school at a level which you do in england were maths physics and chemistry okay um 
and I went to chemistry was my best subject and I went I took a year off but then when I eventually went to university it was to do chemistry mm-hmm. I did six weeks of chemistry um maybe four weeks I can't remember but anyway I realized I was sitting in this huge big lecture theater and there was someone sat in front of me who had a a denim jacket on and it was it was either Saxon or some they might not have been around at the time Black Sabbath and it, that, that I don't know why I just thought I can't I can't do this I wasn't interested in chemistry or physics and whatever else I was studying and um, and I knew I wasn't going to make it through and so I went to see various people and ended up uh, doing a year of psychology and philosophy and then got a degree in psychology um, it hasn't as a subject it hasn't been a huge amount of use to me but as a degree I think it has opened doors mm-hmm. and the things I did when I was at university um, I ran a, a big organisation gave speeches to, to huge you know six or seven hundred people great experience um, worked on the university uh, a student newspaper doing music reviews um, played in a band organised the publicity of all those bands and everything and um, uh, so I did loads of stuff that was kind of, I suppose, media related. I can't think if, uh, if at the time I thought that that's what I decided that, that was what I wanted to do. Um, I did my final year project was about public's perception of the press and media bias in the press. I did a advanced developmental psychology thing about the um, preschool child and preschool children and and tv and how it affected them so i was obviously starting to get interested in it in that at that stage but even then i don't not sure i was i'd ever thought that i would work in actually making it or not i can't think when that happened and you, you talked about making speeches to 600 700 people can i ask what that was that political yeah, or was political that... so i was i've never really been um in political political parties as such but um at the age of 18 i got quite heavily involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament and nottingham university's version of that which was called nund nottingham mm-hmm. university for nuclear disarmament and um some quite successful things that we did so we, we went out we're in the cold dawn light and leafleted the john player factory which was a big cigarette factory in nottingham at the time and the rally factory rally bike factory mm-hmm. And, and through leafletting them set up a kind of a factory-based um, organisation that ended up actually sending a coach full of people down to a big demonst- CND demonstration in London, so that was a bit of a triumph. Um, I helped rather than actually organise that, but then we had to give a speech to reaffirm the Nottingham Student Union's commitment to uh, nuclear disarmament, mm-hmm. and I, I put that forward to 700 people, so it's a great... It's a, it's a, um, it was a great thing that I did, but it did it, it on the road there. It ended up causing me one of my greatest disappointments because I had uh, tickets to see the Smiths, supported by the Red Guitars. I was a big Red Guitars fan and a growing Smiths fan, but that was the night before this big speech. And my mate said to me, "We haven't written our speech. We're not. We don't really know what we're doing. We're going to make asses of ourselves." Um, we're going to have to stay in and plan this speech. So I didn't go and see the Smiths and I never saw the Smiths. Oh, that's a sore So one. that is quite sore. Yeah. But, but you had a higher goal in mind. Um, when I was stood up in front of 700 people making this speech, I was really pleased that my mate, still one of my best mates, made me do it because mm. 
it would have been terrible to have been unprepared. Yeah. So it was a big sacrifice, but glad I did it. So when you when you graduate from uh, from uh, from university, the moment and you know anyone who's been to university when you hand in your final project, which is something I did to you, funnily enough, uh, and walking out your office, I'm thinking, what am I going to do now? And what when you when you finish university? Or you know, you hand in your last thing, or you graduate. Uh, do you think what am I going to do now? Do you have a plan? Or what? I didn't. I, I didn't have a Scooby. If I'm honest, I, I don't think so. I don't think I'm making that up. I really don't think. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I knew what we, we were going to do immediately. Immediately, I went with a bunch of mates, and we went. We, we worked to make a bit of money, and then went, we went to America, and we travelled around America for a month, which was which was a fantastic experience. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was out there doing some version of Camp America or Unicamp or something, and I went out to join her, and then we travelled around delivering cars for people, and oh, yes. uh, so that was fantastic. Um, and then I came back, and I didn't have a job. In my last year at university, I'd been working in this um, restaurant, uh, running that, and then I went back to work there and became the kitchen manager and the restaurant manager. Then it was taken over by some people, and I was made redundant, and I was unemployed for eight months. Um I had a great time. I did quite a lot of voluntary work. I, t I did some uh, teaching English as a foreign language course. I did some voluntary work for Bullwell Toy Library. And I did some voluntary work for Nottingham Youth Action. And uh, at the time, so this is, this is the era of Thatcher government and what was then seen as high unemployment. And they had a couple of schemes. One you might have heard of is kind of a youth you could form a company and you got 40 quid a month as opposed to 25 quid, no, 40 quid a week as opposed to 25 quid a week to run a company. Lots of people set up as bands and recording studios and things. And there was another program called the Community Program, which was kind of community related jobs. But I got a job as a community link worker after being unemployed for eight months, working for Radio Nottingham Social Action Broadcasting Unit, making programming and backup support materials. Uh, in sort of minority health community related issues so that was me that was my first sort of job a radio job media job paid for 20 hours a week not paid very much for 20 hours a week but obviously it was an opportunity and I yeah. and I I worked more than those 20 hours and did lots of other bits and pieces as as well at, for Radio Nottingham and as you're getting into that job is, is there a sort of light bulb forming or are you thinking oh, maybe I can do this or you what's your you know you've the, how long did it? How long did it last for? I can remember. I was there for two and a half years, mm. and I can remember at one point having a conversation with someone who was a producer at Radio Nottingham, and essentially it involved me saying, "I can't carry on just faffing around doing nothing, can I? I've got to mm -hmm. start making some moves." And he said, "Yeah, yeah, you have." And even then, when I was there, I can look back on opportunities that were kind of offered to me that I just didn't really grasp because I thought they'd. I don't know, I think I thought they'd always be there or I didn't realise that they were opportunities at the time. What happened was, so I had this job for a year, this 20-hour-a-week contract, um, and uh, my boss, it was a full-time job running this unit, uh, Hilary Bird, she was called, and uh, she was going to get married, and she was going to get married to one of the Radio Nottingham DJs, and he was Simon Mayo. Uh, so I went to Simon Mayo's wedding. Okay. And then Simon Mayo got the job down at Radio 1. She went down... As if as his wife, but also to work on a BBC somewhere for the, at the BBC in London. So her job became vacant. I got her job running the organisation. So that was my first ever sort of full time 
could stay could have stayed there all my life the thought of it mm -hmm. sends shivers down my spine <laughs> but i could have done it was a very very political job because um it was the 80s was a very political small p political time also big p um the it was funded by the nottingham city council when i got the job that was one seat labor it briefly went one seat conservative so that's a whole shift of our perspective and the way that we're approaching the programming that we're making then there was a by-election up in Bulwell, no Basford or Bulwell where I'd kind of worked at for the toy library and there was a candidate there who was a communist candidate and he he was so well known by the community that they voted him in so the balance of power <laughs> Nottingham City Council I think I've remembered this right was held by this one communist councillor it was astonishingly mm -hmm. the 80s Funny when people talk about the 80s now, they talk about what pixie boots and yeah, you know, George Michael, and George Michael, Arnold. and everything. But actually, it was a very political time, some great political music around the time. And and um, but but that, if I'm honest, isn't really my milieu. I'm not really mm -hmm. happy in any kind of political situations. Yeah. Um, and I was desperately trying to get out of there and to get into kind of mainstream media. Um, and my girlfriend at the time lived in London. I was in Nottingham. Uh, so, of course, I got a job in Birmingham. Um, so my first job was as a researcher on a programme called Daytime Live. Um, and it was a four and a half month job. And what so the funny little story about that is so now when I'm telling students are talking to me about how they get their first job and everything and oh, I've got an interview with so-and-so what should I do to prepare I always say to them okay the most important thing is that you've watched the program right that you've listened to the program that they make right so if you're going for a job on Antiques Road Trip you've watched last night's Antique Road Trip and you've watched about five other versions of the Antique Road Trip it's so easy to do now yeah I'm not making excuses myself here. But anyway, I went for an interview on Daytime Live, a job that I'd applied for through The Guardian. So so there was about 600 people applied for it. I got an interview, if I'm honest, because they'd been in touch with the this social action broadcasting unit that I was working for. So they, I think that was they kind of knew a bit about who I was. But I went for this job interview. I hadn't got an idea. I didn't really know what daytime life was, let alone had I seen it. Mm -hmm. It was ridiculous. But I think it was because I really wanted to work in London. I wasn't that worried about getting this job, which thinking back is just such a stupid approach, uh, that I was very relaxed about the interview. Um, and I remember I decided that what I was going to do. And, the, and it turned out it wasn't just an interview. You were interviewed by about six or eight of the people already working on the production team. And then you went and you had your big interview with mm. the editor of the programme. And so I decided what I was going to say. I was going to say, like when they said, well, what do you think of the programme? And, I, and I'd say, oh, no, no, it's very interesting. But do you think it could be more proactive? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was a nifty sentence to yeah, get around. And one of them said, "Oh, that's a very interesting question." <laughs> and um, I was just really lucky. And um, I, I, but I think I've, I have a pattern with job interviews. I'm either really nervous and I'm a bit rubbish, or I'm rack, relaxed and I can talk. You know, and once I'm relaxed and I'm talking, I'm okay. Yeah. And yeah. That's the pattern that I hear. Is that carried on through your career? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I'm in. I find myself in interviews, and I think that was just rubbish. What were you talking about? Sometimes. It's okay. Um, and so they, they had two jobs to give. And I, I subsequently learned that what happened, that I got the second job and they were going to give it to an internal candidate, but they, they gave me four and a half months and they gave four, her four and a half months of a nine-month contract. This was after I'd gone back for a second interview. And um, Did you watch it before the second thing? 
Do you know that's a very good question? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I think I must have done. Surely I must have done. But then I started working on it and um, it was it was just a fantastic introduction to television. It was outside broadcast. It was single camera filming. It was live broadcasting. Um, I did start off doing quite a lot of social action-y type jobs, those kinds of interviews. But then I just ended up doing celebrity stuff and... Um, uh, what, I remember one of the items I did was about when Saturday comes, one of the first football fanzines, England were playing in Albania. They were taking a coachload of people out to Albania, Albania. So that's I met them through that. That's subsequently been quite a... I've got some good mates through that. Um, and uh, so, but my contract was coming to the end after end of four and a half months and I had to go and talk to the big boss, the editor, about... Um, whether he was going to extend my contract or not. The night before that, it just so happened we were in the BBC club at the time. All BBC premises had a club associated with them, which was essentially just a bar where everybody went to drink at the mm -hmm. end of the day. I was sat around a table with my boss and it turned out that he was a Spurs fan. Jackpot. <laughs> and, and I'm also a Spurs fan, so we talked about football. Next day I went in and... I said, can you give me a job? And he did. Now, had I been not very good and mm. a Spurs fan, I still yeah. don't think he'd have renewed my contract. No. But just that, and it wasn't that, you know, he'd have given me a job if I was an Arsenal fan, but it's yeah. just that we had a conversation yeah. in which we bonded talking about it football. That broke is, down the barrier a wee bit. Yeah, yeah. And that sounds very, you know, People shouldn't be given jobs because of that. No. But it was it was because I'd, I'd made a contact with him, yeah. really, I think. And do you think, because funny enough, I heard a, a story of one of our, one of the current UWS students, a master's student who had been out, who'd made the effort to go to the Edinburgh TV um, festival and was just chatting to a lady about travel and stuff, something she's very interested in. This lady was very interested in travel, and it turned out, she was one of the commissioners for ITN News, and so now she has some, uh, which enabled her to get some work experience at ITN News, uh, and then it's now enabled her to get uh, some paid shifts there. So, and it was, you know, it was more just the fact that she'd made the effort to sit and chat to her on a human level rather. You weren't sitting in the bar going, Can I get a job? Can I get a job? You actually just wanted to sit and chat to them on two on a kind of human level, just happened to be Tottenham Hotspur. That was the, the common denominator between you. You just need to talk, you just need to talk to people. Yeah. And um, if I'm honest, in a kind of Edinburgh Television Festival situation, I'm rubbish. I'm not very good at going up and just talking to people. Yeah, yeah. Once sure. I've gotten in, I'm yeah. quite good at talking to people. But I'm yeah. not that first breaking thing. Yeah. I'm really bad at yeah. it. <laughs> um, but uh, but you do, but you do, and then you know you start talking, and then you've got yeah. something else in common, yeah. something else that you can put in an email that isn't just the thing that you're writing about. Yeah. It's sometimes yeah. quite useful. A bit of chat. Yeah, because you think as well, just to almost touch on when you're building, you know, when you're working with people, or you're building teams. It's it's good that there are other things that bond you together. You know, there's obviously there's in, it's important that if you're hiring someone, whatever they or you want, you know, you as if you've been, a, you know, as a director, you're picking a camera person to work with or whatever. It's obviously important that they're good at being a camera operator. But it's nice also, I imagine, for the sort of harmony, especially if you're working long days with them, that you can get on with the person as well, just on a on a kind of human level, that must add a lot to the actual to, to anything that you're trying to do and achieve in any walk of life. It is important that you get on, and some, but sometimes that can lead to a kind of a, 
a matey a sort of mm. jo jobs for the boys sure, kind of sure. mateyness. So you have to be careful to to avoid that. And what you have to remember is that you can get on with anybody. From, yeah. From any kind of background, sure. you can find yourself bonding over yeah, yeah. over of course whatever. So so. You have to be careful that you're not sort of creating some kind of closed shop just of mates. Mm -hmm. But it is really important that when you're working with someone, mm -hmm. you're thinking, you're thinking, you know, I'm really yeah. enjoying working with them. Yeah. And you have to be. I often say to students, you have to be really, really, really good at your job mm -hmm. to be not very nice to work with. Yeah. And keep on getting asked back. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah, because and. Because if you're detracting from the the harmony of the, yeah, you know, it yeah. gets us. You know, we've both worked on on TV shows, whatever. It's there's long days and it's hard and stuff like that at yeah. times. So you've got to, but uh, but yeah, you know, you're right. You can't just hire people on the strength of what football team they support. So no. that wouldn't go, especially in Glasgow. That's just that's that's how things frowned no. upon. Um, so you, so you're obviously you've you've got that job. Your contract's extended. Are you thinking to yourself? I've made, you've made it, Paul. Or you think to yourself, "Oh, this is um, I could just, look, I'm, making, I'm making strides forward." I'm still kind of thinking. I'd, I'd, I'd quite like to move down to London. Um, girlfriend in London. Mm. I think. I think if I was looking back and I have my time again, I might stay longer at that job in Birmingham because it was. It, there were great opportunities to move into directing and um, and to, to 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 do other things. And I could I, my. my I think there were there were opportunities there. Now, I, I mean, of course, the whole place has closed down, though. So, so mm -hmm. those opportunities pretty um, soon closed down. But, but anyway, I didn't. I went down to London. Um, I got a job working on the Wogan program, mm -hmm. which is a great thing to talk about. But if I'm honest, it's not me. You have to really want to meet very, very famous people to be very successful working on Wogan and say, mm -hmm. right, I'm going to get Paul Newman yeah. and get Paul Newman. I was I was trying to get Gary Lineker and they weren't really interested. It's quite interesting. They really weren't interested in Gary Lineker yeah, at the time. Yeah, that's weird. Huh? Which is, I suppose, understandable. He's not the most interesting guest, but he, he had no presence at all then. And mm -hmm. So I became the kind of sporting correspondent. I had a long, long lunch once with Ian Botham's manager at the time, but he changed managers every two months. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to, uh, interesting, uh, you know, I was there the day that... Um, uh, um, Rolling Stone married Bill Wyman I was there the day that Bill Wyman got married and he came in because what else would you do on your wedding day but come in and be on Wogan yeah yeah uh, that was quite an experience and, uh, I was there for about three months but um, it wasn't it wasn't really my job I moved on to a program called Family Matters which was more kind of me and I mm -hmm. kind of uh, did in, enjoy that and then various programs um, in the what was called topical features at the time um uh, worked on a thing called The Naked Actor, which was Nigel Plainer's kind of a comedy spoof. He played a spoof actor. And what kind of jobs different. are you doing in them? Sorry to interrupt. What As a researcher. Are you a researcher? Sorry, I'm yeah. a researcher and then a, and assistant producer eventually. Okay. Um, which um, traditionally the, the assistant producer's role at the BBC would be the director's role, um, but I wasn't really yet quite getting into directing. Um, Again, I remember someone saying, "Yeah, I think Paul could do a bit of directing on this," and I was going, "Oh no, I'm not doing it." Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, um, you know, um, I should have been saying, "Yeah, uh, uh, so and so said I could do a bit of directing on this. Is, is it possible?" Yeah. Rather than you know not mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. Um, so, assistant producer, researcher, and the last job I did before we moved to the states was on um, the Clive James Review of the Year 
which is a lot of watching VHS clips of news clips, trying to find funny little things and mm -hmm. suggesting jokes and things. It's a good experience, but the, the very thought that we we were, you know, we started working on the New Year's Eve show in June, I think, and I got married in September, and they would only give me a week off because we were too close to the show's transmission. <laughs> You know, in December the thirty like, first, yeah, yeah. that wouldn't happen any yeah. longer. Yeah. Um, so, in so what kind of what year? What year are we talking? So this? that was uh, that's eighty eight to. Um, uh, I got married in ninety two, um, and so finished working on that program. Just well, just at the start of ninety three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so nineteen ninety three, you. No, I, I can't. I think I know the answer to this. It's you moved to the United States. Is that That's right. right yeah. And can I ask what? Can I ask what brought that about? Then was it was. Yeah, yeah. I got married. Um, uh, my uh, wife then and now, uh, Peg was working as a. Um, she was doing a doctorate at in a university in London, and her postdoctorate she got offered a job in San Francisco. We weren't married at the time just living together in Ealing and it was going to be a lot easier if we were married and this sounds very unromantic so we said well should we get married then so we got <laughs> married and that meant that I could apply for employment authorization on the back of her visa she got a J1 I got a J2 visa but when we went to America I didn't know whether I was going to get that or not so it was a bit it was a bit of a, of a risk and I remember so moved to San Francisco which was fantastic but we had three nights accommodation that were provided for us, I think maybe four nights accommodation. We had to find a flat and I had to apply for employment authorization. And um, I remember the morning, so I think we'd, we had, we'd got one more night in this flat and I'd been to see the big scary official dumb people about getting employment authorization. I was sitting down Fisherman's Wharf, I don't know if you know San Francisco, yeah. but Fisherman's Wharf is a big touristy bit and I was sitting down on the bench and I was thinking, well, if I get one of those, it'll be okay. I probably will only get one out of the two, won't we? But then we got a phone call. Don't know how we got the phone call. Um, saying that we'd got the flat and I and I got employment authorization. So we're all kind Result. of good, good to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was us living in San Francisco. And so, well, first, what kind of jobs did you have there? And secondly, was it a mutt? Did you find it diff completely different to Auckland in the UK? Or? Yeah, it was very different. And I'd worked in television for four and a half years which of course is nothing now, but I was, I remember I thought, I don't, know, I don't know whether television's for me and maybe I want to try something else or I'm a bit bored with it. Mm. And, um, but then we got there and we'd got Peg's salary, but it wasn't very much. We weren't very well off. There was a time when we, uh, we had $2 left, which we went and spent on a bottle of Budweiser, which is wrong on so many levels. <laughs> but, um, but we, but I, there's lots of free newspapers in San Francisco. There was at the time one, I think, was the Bay Area Guardian, and and you got you, it's like the movies. You know, mm. you get them out one of those metal things on the street, and um, you. I was looking at them, and it said, um, produ "Production company wants volunteers to transcribe interviews." And I rang up the number, and. Uh, they asked me in and I hadn't really said that I'd got an experience I just said I've just arrived it mm. quite you know voluntary work suit me for the time being mm. and it was a company called Green TV and they were based on Alamo Square Alamo Square is 
quite famous in San Francisco. It's the famous shot of the what they call the Victorians, which is the old wooden Victorian buildings. He had a house on Alamo Square. At the time, I should have thought, this guy's obviously quite... Got, this yeah. isn't a bad job to do if he's got a house here. Mm -hmm. And that's where his office was based. And I started off... He was making a documentary, an environmental documentary about the Sierra Nevadas. This is kind of the spine of mountains where the skiing is in California, runs down the back of California. And he'd done some interviews and he just wanted them transcribed. So I would sit there and, I'd, and he pretty quickly realised that my transcribing skills were absolutely rubbish. But we must have had, through conversations, he must have realised that I'd got a bit of TV experience. And so he, he got me involved and eventually he asked me if I'd go on this long filming trip that he'd got planned as a as a I don't know if I had a title but just to help him out um so we were camping in the Sierra Nevada um he bought me a sleeping bag I remember and some thermal underwear I should have been a bit concerned at that point uh and we were camping out and going out filming staying in motels sharing motel rooms but it's just fantastic I remember like four days in and I was in a hot air balloon floating over the Sierra Nevada, these beautiful sort of forested mountain areas, mm. um, filming things uh, up in a helicopter and filming helicopter logging. Um, fantastic experience. No money at all. Just, he, he, bought, he bought my food for me. And there was a bit of an incident that sort of um, indicates the US-UK divide. So we went for something to eat at the end of the day and ordered burger and, burger and chips and we were eating away. And Frank, his name was, he's still a really close friend. And he leant over and he said, Paul, he said, everybody in this restaurant is looking at you because you're eating your burger with a knife and fork. <laughs> um, and so, uh, okay, all right. So I had to pick it up. And, uh, you know, I would now never eat a burger with a knife and fork. <laughs> uh, or a pizza, actually, I don't mm, think. No. But... Um, didn't threaten a special relationship? It didn't, it didn't threaten a special relationship. And... Um, he took me to see my first baseball game. I love baseball. It was on his birthday. I think it might have been on his 40th birthday. I just turned 30. He just turned 40. Um, where this player called Barry Bonds had just been signed for £45 million over seven years or nine years. Can't remember the exact figures, but he's a big, big star. And uh, I, just, I loved baseball from the moment. Mm. I'd, I'd hated it up to that point. And I was quite prepared to hate it, <laughs> but I loved it. American sport is just a fantastic thing to go and see. I know you'd have yeah. been to a few, and it's just yeah. that whole thing where, so you've come from, from standing on terraces, I think at the time, watching football, mm. and the guy runs down, he says, anybody, you know, beer here, beer here, mm. rope here. And you say, I'll have a beer. And he passes the beer down the row, yeah. and you pass the money and, up and the road. And it road. makes it. Just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I once, there's a, you know, the thing with baseball is that they hit many balls into the crowd. Mm. And if you catch one, or if you get one, you can keep it. Yeah. And people sometimes go with a baseball mitt. Ready. Especially ready to catch a ball. And I once saw um, someone on, like on the second tier up of a baseball stadium and um, waiting to get a ball hit. Like, what are the, like, what are the chances of that? Yeah. But lo and behold, a ball did go up. He leant over with his mitt and he dropped it. <laughs> oh, um, oh dear anyway what I was going to say is at one time I went and I'd, and I'd got my burrito and I'd got my beer and I was shuffling over the game had started for a little bit late and I was shuffling over into my seat and I was just sitting down beer in one hand burrito in the other hand the ball sailing directly <laughs> towards me what am I going to do I'm not yeah. going to drop my beer no. am I? unfortunately chapping the row in front of me jumps up and catches it 
before you. Yeah. before it came. That was the closest. Hit me on the head. <laughs> that was the closest it came. Yeah. You could have nonchalantly just knocked it down. I could have headed it down to, it down to yeah. Peg, couldn't I? Yeah. yeah. My wife. Yeah. yeah. Just your footballing, a bit, footballing ability. Yeah. Not never been very good. It would, at have, have, it could have been the equivalent of your mm. diving header in the cup final. That's all for this time. Thanks very much for downloading or streaming this episode. And thanks, of course, to Paul Tucker for sitting down with me. You can follow me on Twitter. It's simple enough. I'm at Jamie Hare and give me any thoughts you have. Goodbye for now, though, and I'll be back next week with part two as Paul tells me how he went from working for free in America to a career as a producer, director and lecturer in Scotland. 